Well, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the All Things Croatia podcast. Uh, Steve Pavlovich, known as Pav, is a Croatian-Australian music entrepreneur, you know, from booking some of the biggest bands in the 90s, 90s to starting his own record label, putting on festivals in Croatia. Uh, he's done it all. And I'm going to read these opening sentences of an article that I found online because I think it's cool. For a fair bit of the 1990s, Steve Pavlovich was the coolest guy in Australia. Pav had the home phone numbers of everyone on the cutting edge, from Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl to the Beastie Boys and Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. I just thought that'd be a super cool introduction, uh, but Pav, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Stunk. Oh, I would have said that. That's so flowery. It might as well have been written in Croatian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I could speak Croatian as, as well as I... Actually, my English wasn't that great reading that intro either, but uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely a cool, cool intro. I'm really excited to, you know, learn a little bit more about you. But first, you know, you're you're on Vs. We spoke a little off camera and, you know, I've been messaging you. I know you're on Vs. Uh, can you, keeping that in mind, talk a little about your Croatian heritage? Sure. So um, my father immigrated to Australia after the Second World War, maybe sort of early 50s or something. And he met my mother, an Australian woman, and uh, they fell in love. And uh, he bred strongly, <laughs> had six children and had to work like three jobs to sort of take care and pay for everything. So we spent a lot of time growing up with my mother's so never really learned to speak. So I didn't, didn't really feel any connection to my Croatian heritage. So much later, when I was started dating a Croatian girl, and she was from Zagreb, and she was living in Australia. And I'm like, oh, I'm Croatian. And she's like, bullshit, you are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't even speak. So I'm like, okay, well, I feel a bit weird about this. So I'm like, well, I want to know more about where my father was from and, you know, my background. So... I'd sold a business at the time and things were going pretty good. So I took my father and my mother and the girlfriend at the time, Tanya, to Zagreb. But along the way, my brother heard I was going. He's like, well, I really want to go. I said, okay, I'll bring you and your wife. And then they, my sister found out, oh, you're, you're taking those guys as well. So in the end, I ended up taking a whole bunch of us. And um, we went and saw where my father was from, traveled around, saw where he grew up, school and stuff, met some of our relations. And then after that, Tanya and I took a holiday along the island. So we went to, I think, like Korchla, Brach, um, Hua, and Vis. And, yeah. and then when I was there, I was like, man, we're pretty serious about things. If we're going to have a family, I would like our children to be more connected to their heritage than I was. And we'd been drinking more, too much wine. <laughs> and I saw a house for sale. And I'm like, let's buy a house. So I ended up buying this impulse sort of house thing. And the following day, I kind of woke up with a hangover. I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? I've just bought a house 24 hours away from my house. This is the worst thing I've ever done. But it turned out to be quite possibly the best thing I ever did. And then my daughter was born a year and a half later. And so she's been coming every year since she was born. So she understands well. She speaks well. She's not so confident. Um, but, yeah, so I feel like she's got a good handle on her heritage. And it's given me the opportunity to spend a lot of time here. Wow, that's crazy. Crazy how life sort of gives you twists and turns and then, you know, you sort of end back back up where it all started, yeah. you know, at least for your father. Yeah. Had, had your father been back at all before you took the, the whole family over or was that his first time back? Yeah. No, he'd been back once before, maybe twice, maybe, I think once really. And, you know, at that time I was just a sort of young rebellious child that just loved my music and stuff and I wasn't really interested in too much about culture. I was pretty obsessive about music growing up. So I just didn't pay a lot of mind. It wasn't like I said until too many years later, I met this woman, Tanya, and, you know, bada-bim, bada-boom, and there we are. And here I am, and, you know, really deeply loving being it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned music. And of course, you know, I want to ask you about that. Where did you sort of get your start, uh, musically speaking? Well, it wouldn't have been for my family. I, I listened to terrible music and <laughs> growing up around it. But I remember when I was about 11 years old, I had a couple of friends, Matt and Chris Eddy. And they um, they had older brothers and sisters that had a lot of vinyl albums. And I would go to their house and, like, you know, their house was so Australian, you know. It's like, you know, beer, like, precious beer and, like, pipe tobacco and the sounds and the smells, meat pies and all this stuff. It was a really Aussie house. And they had all, like, David Bowie and, you know, Lou Reed and all these kind of guys and Iggy Pop. So I started from the Beatles, particularly the Beatles. When I first started listening to them, going, wow, what is this, you know. So I discovered all that kind of music at their house. And my house is more like as much as my rest of my family is pretty wired. My father being Croatian, we had Chavapi, Wally Popovich, Tony Smolcich, <laughs> all those guys around our house, you know, and drinking homemade rakia and stuff. So for me, it was an interesting dynamic between my family and sort of their family. And the thing that I really took from their family was that music side. So we discovered a lot of stuff through them. And then just got really passionate about it. I started just collecting records and buying albums. So I would do some working for my father after school and on the weekends and then every money bit of money I made I would just go buy vinyl albums you know and so that was pretty obsessed from about 12 years old um and for you want to give, I'll give you a long-winded version of this <laughs> um after that you know I um just you know just was around as much as much as I can I go see as many live bands as I could and then one day I was like finished school it must have been like 18, 19 or something. And uh, um, a friend of mine was in a band and I'm moving to Sydney. And I was doing a pretty boring, straight down job. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm, you know, I've been seeing this girl, Rosalind Dixon, for two years. I'm going to be married to breeding with her in the suburbs in no time. And I had this sort of epiphany that I had to change my life. So I just hitched a ride with these guys to Sydney. And by the time we got to Sydney, they said, like, you used to organise things and manage things at the YMCA. Why don't you, you know, manage our band? So by the time we got to Sydney, which is a four-hour drive, I was their manager. And then I started just, I didn't know anything I was doing. I just called people up. And then eventually I started getting more and more shows and I met more and more people in the industry. And then a good friend of mine was in this local record store I shop at all the time. And he was like, this band, Mudhoney, want to come to Australia. You should do it. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So they just gave me their number and I would speak to them. And we uh, organized a pretty um, sort of rudimental sort of sort of bare bones tour. And I was pretty naive. I just asked anyone I could for help and what, what I should do. And they came out and we had a really great time. And they were like, you should tour our friends Nirvana. I'm like, I love Nirvana. At, at this point, the Bleach album was, had only been released. And I'm like, I love Nirvana. So he said, well, here's Kurt and Chris's number. So I just call them up. Hey, this is Pav from Down Under. I want to bring you to Australia. And they'd be like, oh, we're making an album. Yeah, give us a few more months. This went on for about a year and a half. Until eventually they said, oh, we've got a manager, this guy now, John Silver. And I'd known John. I'd met him previously. And he was like, yeah, dude, we'll stick with you. We'll show with you. You know, the record's coming out in two months. And so then Nevermind came out and was like the biggest record ever. And six months later, I had them in Australia, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's not, not a bad start. Yeah, not at all. That's awesome. That's crazy. So you're calling up, I mean, with Mud Honey, I guess, was your sort of first big break. You're calling up venues and saying, hey, I've got Mud Honey, you know, I'm trying to book them on a tour. Like, will you take them? How, how does that process work? You know, how do you even book a whole tour for, for a band, you know? 
Yeah. So, like, first thing is you just got to work out a budget. So, like, I got like four guys coming down here. Here's the air flights. Here's the accommodation. Here's the sound production, marketing we're going to spend. I would book a venue and I promoted the shows myself. So, um, I would rent a venue. Uh, maybe maybe it was one sort of a Greek theater or something in Melbourne. It has holds a thousand people, and I feel like there's enough buzz around that maybe we could fill that. And so then you book the venue, you bring your sound lights in, and you know put the show on, and you hope that it all sort of pans out, and you sell enough tickets so it works, you know. And I was very fortunate; the things just kind of worked. <laughs> all the posty <laughs> things I did, you know, and and I was lucky that I knew other people over the journey. Um, who would help me with stuff. So one of the first two, this woman, Kate Stewart, she worked for another promoter. So I was like, Kate, how do I do a budget? How do I, how do I get a visa for a band? I can't get in the country. She would help me do it. I literally didn't even have a computer at the time. So she would just like, you know, type all these budgets out and letters for me and I'd send it fax back, back then we were faxing each other, you know. <laughs> so it was all pretty raw, you know. Um, and I'll tell you another funny part of the story with Nirvana. I'd met this woman. I'd been to New York a few years earlier. Her name Alexa, and um, I met her in a bar watching bands at something new music seminar at the time. And then she's like, "Oh, I've always wanted to go to Australia." I'm like, "Oh yeah, well you know I've got a spare room in my house." And you know when you just, that kind of falls out of your mouth, you don't really expect that someone show up two weeks later <laughs> and then stay for six months. So she literally showed up and stayed for six months. We became really good mates. And then she went back to America. Was working for AT and T operators. And she's like, oh, I can give you this bogus calling card. It's just a, a number. So, and in those days, international phone calls were quite expensive, for me anyway. And we didn't really have mobiles. So I booked all the Nirvana's tour from a payphone on the post office box outside my house with this dodgy calling card. So I call them up, everything there. I just, just threw it all there on the payphone while I'm sipping a juice. I've just come off the beach. I've had a swim. <laughs> and I spent two hours in the phone booth doing my business. Uh, it's kind of like complete opposite of, you know, today's day you're in an office, you got the AC, you're in a suit. Maybe, I don't know. That's just how I imagine. Yeah. But <laughs> that's classic, yeah. classic story at the yeah. payphone with Nirvana. Well, I, I want to yeah. ask a little bit about, about the guys. Um, you know, everyone always wants to know about Kurt. But, uh, you know, one thing probably a lot of the listeners know is that Chris, you know, the bassist uh, was also Croatian. Yeah. And I believe maybe even a few years during high school, he moved back to Croatia somewhere near Zada. Actually, I read that in one of my uh, Croatian language textbooks um, that I discovered yeah. that. So I was wondering, did you guys ever talk about that? Yeah, no, one thing we connected on, like, he would he would swear at me in Croatian often <laughs> uh, during the tour. And I think that's a good – that was maybe one of the first connectivity points I had with, with Chris was because of our background, you know. And he'd, he'd obviously grown and spent a lot more time in Croatia, right? and I hadn't. But um, I kind of knew a little bit of what's going on. So we were kind of bonded about that. And we had a – like, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. I really, really like Chris a lot. Very smart, very caring. And, you know, I don't know, generous with his time. And so, you know, it, it was, I'd spent a lot of time hanging out with him and his wife at the time, you know, because when they go on tour, you know, and spend a couple of weeks with people, you drive around the country, you're in a van together. But, you know, I took them camping <laughs> um, in between shows, you know, and they're like, wow, <laughs> on a beach, they want to see some kangaroos. So I took them to this little coastal town on you, and there's a grass headland down there, and you can camp. and from cabins and stuff and they all spent the night down there and we cooked sandwiches by the fire and shit and then you know um yeah then they saw the kangaroos and chris was like flicking them with the towels and stuff it's pretty funny 
Everyone was uh, like scared. He's like he marched straight over the Balkan walls of the tower. Like, Boom, get out of here, kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> That's I've, I've never been to Australia. That's still so crazy to me that, like, first of all, that kangaroos exist, but that you guys are just so, like, whatever around them, you know? Like, oh, yeah, it's a kangaroo. Let's go flick it with the yeah. towel. <laughs> That's nuts to me. <laughs> it, it's strange because, like, you, like, when you see something enough and you grow up with it, it does seem like no big deal, but... Literally, pretty much all the bands I ever worked with, like, wanted to see kangaroos so bad. And they're like, wow. We were like, really? Strive <laughs> <Yeah. on?" laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Chris, I have, uh, yeah, I'd like to get him on the podcast as well. I hear he's a little bit off the grid uh, these days, I guess, up in Washington, yeah. just kind of, you know, chilling there. Are you still in contact with, you know, Dave Grohl? Yeah, I mean... You know, I just had an exhibition. I haven't really been in the music biz for the last several years, right? So after I did all those tours with those bands, I did, you know, like Beastie Boys and Pearl Jam and Offspring and all kinds of stuff like that. And then with the record label, that was really fun for me to do for another 10 years. And I kind of got tired of that. And then, and so I recently did an exhibition at a museum in Sydney. Uh, the music, uh, exhibition was called Unpopular. And as part of that process, I interviewed most, not most of the people, a lot of the people I've worked with. So we had some sort of some oral history stuff that was throughout the exhibition. So I interviewed Dave like about a year ago, which turned really great. And had a great chat with the Beasties and Figarazi and guys from Sonic Youth. And it's been really fun to do. And then there's a book that accompanies this exhibition as well. So that's almost completed. Um, so there's a lot of images then from all the tours we've did. We filmed a lot of things back then as well. So there's like really cool images and stuff that people wouldn't have seen before. And even just the communication, I've got all these postcards from everybody. And everyone, no one had mobile phones. You would just write postcards to everyone. Hey, I'll see you in Tokyo. Here I am with Sonic Youth and yada, yada, yada. And some of those letters and postcards are pretty cool to read, you know. So the book's sort of comp- compiled of all that stuff. But um, I'll share these interviews with you. If you're interested in listening to them, just let me know. We'll figure it out afterwards. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Where's this exhibition located? It was in Sydney, uh, an exhibition, uh, sorry, museum called Powerhouse. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's just finished now. It was up for the last eight months, uh, and it closed out, and I came on holidays to Greece. <laughs> That's awesome. And you said you said you're working on a book as well? Yeah, I'm just going to finish the last bit of the book, and I, I've got to say, I, I sort of hope to have finished it by now, but... Every day I seem to get distracted around here. I got a bunch of friends, and you know, Visa is a beautiful island, and there's a lot of great beaches and conivas and places to eat and drink. And all my friends have vineyards and bars here and restaurants. It's kind of hard to get a lot done. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and when the, I mean, the weather's been so nice too lately. When you see weather like that, and you see the you know sea, I mean, you can't yeah. help but go outside and you know go swimming a little, go sit at the the coffee, each, yeah. drink a little coffee or beer. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Exactly, you know. <laughs> and like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be sitting inside, writing and finishing up this last part of the book. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll get back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost finished. So once I deliver my last part of it, the design has been done, images have been selected, we've cleared all these things. I've written out over 30,000 words. I'm just tweaking it a bit, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully people will enjoy it. But uh, there's some good stuff in there. That's awesome. Do you have maybe like a website or a link, um, a social media or something that you can share now that people who are, you know, waiting for that book to come out can sort of follow it or hear news? Yeah, there's um, a Instagram account called this underscore is underscore unpopular. 
And there's a bunch of images there from the book and stuff. You get a taste of what was happening in the exhibition. And there's some Polaroids I've taken, like Kurt and Chris and everyone when we were hanging out. And pretty much all the different bands. There's, there's bits and bobs of, you know? So it gives a bit of a taste. Okay, that's awesome. I'll include that link down below in the episode description. So if people listening can can click on that and follow. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you started a uh, record label. Can you talk just a little bit about that? How did that start? What are some of those bands that you signed on that label? I mean, it's like when I was doing the tours in Australia, you know, we often have to put on an opener. So I would choose the Australian openers, had to play with the, the international artists. And I noticed that a lot of people I chose would then go on to become quite successful. So I thought I said I had a bit of an ear for it. And, and then um, a friend of mine randomly from America said, listen, i got this guy, he's English, he's coming to Australia, he's going to be running EMI Records, he doesn't know anyone, would you have a coffee with him? I'm like, yeah, of course I have coffee with him, you know. So we sat down and he got there and we talked about stuff and he's like, what are you doing with your tour? And I explained that to him. And he was like, well, man, it sounds like you should do a label. You ever thought about doing a label? I'm like, oh, man, I'd love to do a label. And so we just hatched this plan. And I started this record company called Modular. And the first band I signed was a band from Melbourne that sent me a demo tape called The Avalanches. And then, um, you know, they sent me a demo tape because they wanted to support one of the bands that I was touring at the time. So I signed them. I thought they were really great. And then uh, I signed another band, The Living Hand, and this other kid, Ben Lean. So the first record was by its band, The Living Hand, came out. We told it like four or five times platinum in Australia. So it did like really well. And then the second record was Ben Lee's record, and that went platinum. Then this band, The Avalanches, we went platinum with that one as well in Australia, but also it translated around the world as a top 10 in the UK sort of album debut, you know? So I did real well. And then suddenly I'm like, wow, this record stuff's real easy. <laughs> I should do more of it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I signed some other local bands. One was the presets, one was uh, cut copy. And then I licensed some international stuff. Another friend of mine called me and said, hey, listen, there's this guy, Jack Johnson, we know. He's looking for a label. Do you know any labels? I'm like, oh, shit, I just started a label a while ago since the last time I saw you. And she's like, oh, can I give him your deals? I'm like, yeah. So then I'm talking to Jack Johnson. So we signed Jack Johnson. And that did really, really well for us. And then I signed a band called Wolf Mother and Tame Impala. And again, those things did very well for us globally. And I would license different, you know, American artists and English artists. And we did some as Klaxons and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and all this kind of stuff. So I had a good dream run of that for 10, 15 years. It was a lot of fun, you know. And at the time, I found promoting... You know, it just became really a bit dull to me in, in a way. I felt like really when I started out, it was like literally like, hey, here's Chris's number, here's Chris's number, call him up. So I, I felt it was really sort of personable and I would work with people and, you know, with them and their small time management, small agents. But as that became really successful, I got big management companies, big agents. And after a while, I felt like I was working in a public service. You know, they were just like, mm -hmm. here, play this venue, use this artwork, do this, do that. And if all sells out, then you'll make a little bit at the end. I'm like, man, I felt like I was stamping like in the public service. So I found it so boring. I'm like, and then an opportunity to do the record label stuff to find a band from really early stages, be involved in all the creative stuff in terms of like the album cover design, even making music videos, taking photos. I found it way more sort of interesting and compelling for me creatively. So I, I enjoyed that a lot for like sort of 10, 15 years. And then I kind of got to the end of that too. I feel like maybe I've only got a 10-year concentration span. <laughs> and then I need to do something new, you know? 
and yeah, that's kind of where I'm today. That looking for that next thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you had a great track re record, of course, with the the label. Um, you also put on a lot of festivals, and I want to ask, um, you know, first about about that putting on festivals. But you also put one on in Croatia. Yeah, that was that was an adventure in time, man. <laughs> uh, I decided I was coming to Visa every year, and it's a long way from Australia. It's like twenty four hours almost, no flying time. And then you know, I get here, and I'd spend four to uh, six weeks, and then Phil is like pushed to go back to the office and everything in Australia. And I'm like. What if I created some business opportunity in Croatia so that it's justifiable I spend three months here? <laughs> so I'm like, I'll do a music festival. So I reached out to some of my Croatian friends I've met over the years and, you know, some of them are involved in sort of creative industries and they sort of helped push me and introduce me to different people. So we ended up doing something on Khvar, um, where we had a day party. Uh, there's a little island just off Khvar called Yerlem and a friend of ours, Marare, owns this with her family out of this island for a long time. There's like a nudist beach on it. So we just do like DJs on that beach there from 2 till 8 p.m. And then everyone would come back into town on the small boats. And then I'd say, well, now well, then you can have some dinner and then you can like maybe go to a bar, shower, whatever, like really pump all, you know, <laughs> super chill. And so then we at 11 p.m. we would start the live bands in a little venue in town called Benaranda. And, um, so we'd have that from 11 to 1 a.m. And then we have the little, I think they're called Bacaolis, these little boats and the drivers. They would take us back out to another island, Carpe Diem, Stepanska. And, um, they, you know, they would go to like 6 a.m. So there's three different sort of venues we used across the island a few days. And, you know, we had live bands like, you know, Tame Impala, Nina Cherry, James Blake. And I had DJs like Too Many DJs, James Murphy, Mark Ronson. We had the Plaxons play. I mean, a whole bunch more stuff I can't recall off the top of my head. But, you know, I did that and it was super great. And everyone had a really good intimate experience because you spend a few days on an island, you know, you're on a, on a boat with the same group of people. You see them walking up and down the street, stay in the same sort of hotels. People had really good connections, you know, and it was really friendly. It was quite small. We really did like about 1,000 people the first year. So then the second year I did it again and it grew again to about 1,500. And then the third year when I was going to do it, I was involved in a legal matter in Australia. And then the judge set the the court date for right when the festival was going to be. So I'm like, oh, stuff it. We'll just move it back to it. It was in June. I'm like, we'll move it to September. So we set a new date in September. And we started marketing and telling everyone. And then I lost in the court, in the Supreme Court, first time around. And I felt really kind of hard done by it. So I said, I'm going to take this to the Court of Appeal. So we went to the Court of Appeal and they set the new date for when I moved the festival to. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to deal with my shit here for a while. Let's forget about doing the festival in Croatia. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of a luxury. It was super fun. I'm really glad I did it. And I met a lot of really wonderful people here too, you know? So, yeah, that, that sounds awesome. Would you ever think about, you know, putting another one on? I don't know. Man. I mean, I. When I've done things, I find like I've done it. It's kind of enough, you know. Mm -hmm. I know I can do something, do it well. I'm like, oh yeah. Now, what else can I do? So it's not really in my mindset, but um, you know, it's it's a difficult place. Um, I think when you're trying to do something in a country where you live on, on the other side of the world, is not so easy, you know. Um, I mean, I like the energy of a lot. It was really great, you know, and people had a really wonderful time. 
But my, I guess my head's just, you know, I'm working on this documentary project at the moment, um, which is about music and stuff, very similar to the exhibition in the book. So maybe it's an accompanying piece to that. So hopefully that gets the, the green light and we get into that. But that's... Something I haven't done before, so I've got boundless energy for it. It's really interesting, you know. Um, the idea of putting on a show or doing concerts is not maybe not so interesting to me, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you what does sort of the the future look like. I know you're looking for a new project. It sounds like that documentary, you know, as well as finishing the book, is sort of the next big things for you. Yeah. So you know, I'm trying to make a pivot into that sort of world. I've found found that kind of interesting, and got a few ideas. I've been talking to people about. And, it's sort of like two parts. It's, if it's a documentary, I'm pretty sure it'll get picked up. It's pretty compelling. Um, and then um, after that, there'll be a second part to that as well. So, And then there's a fictional idea. So that's what I would like to do in a dream world. I'll have to see how it goes. But I, I, I found out that, you know, I didn't know anything about putting on a concert when I started doing it. <laughs> I didn't know anything about putting out records when I started doing it. I just had a strong interest, a lot of enthusiasm for it and a little knack for writing, landing in the right places. And I kind of believe it'll be the same with this. <laughs> I yeah. tell myself that anyway. Well, yeah, that's, that's the attitude you have to have going into things. You, know, you, you got to believe in it and, you know, maybe a little bit of luck sometimes helps, but, uh, you know, definitely you got to have that confidence and go into things, you know, thinking that you're believing that you're able to accomplish them. So, you know, definitely wish you yeah. luck on that and looking forward to, to seeing the results of those. A um, couple sort of ending questions for you. Uh, mm -hmm. First one is something that I've been asking all the guests that come on 
what to you makes Croatia special? I love, I, I think there's a sense of honesty in people here and there's a real like charm, you know, and much as there's a lot of pirates and <laughs> they'll rob you blind if you're tourists, but they do it with a smile and a charmingness and a warmness. It's so good, you know. Um, so there's this warmth about the people I really, really like. And then just the island life is, man, the water here is so clean and blue and the food, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan, you know. Um, I can see myself living here. I just have to work on my speech. Not <laughs> 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 well, yeah, even, even on the islands, I know the dialect is, is a lot different than sort of what, what I've been, you know, learning up in Zagreb. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely you got to sort of stay there for a long period of time and get used to hearing it and, you know, speaking it yourself. And, you know, it, it comes slowly, at least for me. Respect to you, man, because I when you approached me, I didn't know much about your podcast or anything, so I had a look around and I saw you interviewed on that one where you talked about your journey and to come to the Zagreb and to study. And I'm like, that's a lot of respect, man. It's hard to go to, you know, another country and learn a la language from the ground up, even if it's in your DNA. You know, I've been around people speaking my, most of my life growing up. My father's friends were all Croat. Um, but still, I just, my, my head, head doesn't work like that. It's so hard to process. So, you know, when someone can do it, I'm like, respect, you know, so kudos to yeah, you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it's definitely not easy. I still struggle a lot. And it's not something that's, you know, natural to me yet. I still have to really think when I'm speaking and think, you know, when I'm listening to try and understand. But uh, definitely I've come a long way um, and it's definitely been worth it to come over here and and do this program. And now, you know, I've sort of decided to stay. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you know, sort of related to life on the island, I guess. Uh, what's your favorite thing to eat while you're here? Yeah, they have uh, one restaurant here called Stonchitsa. And the guy there on the grill, he's grilled lamb and baby goat or sardines, anchovy, anything on the grill there. And that place is top shelf. It's so freaking good. And they make their, I mean, everything they pretty much grow in the backyard, comes from the backyard straight onto the, to the plate. So, you know, these wild sort of garlic mashed potatoes. It's pretty basic, but it's all super good, you know? Yeah. Uh, then another restaurant here is Poyota. They do really great sort of fish on the grill and stuff. And my neighbor, Maren, he's a grill master here in the Bronx. So uh, I always go out there and him. It's like 100 degrees in this little box in the back of the restaurant where he's grilling all the fish and the, the lobsters and everything. That's beautiful, you know? Mm. And then there's another little bar right below me as well. It's called Lambic, and they do pizza. And my friend Tomo, he owns that Tommy Slab. And then you know, it's really hard to get past there at night. And I got to go past that place to go anywhere. So there's everyone sitting at the bar having a drink. So I'm walk past, I'm like, hey, sit down, have a drink with us. So I find the night's quite distracting. But pizza there, Stonchicha for the best grill, and then the the seafood with Piotr. <laughs> yeah, with all these restaurants around you, it's a wonder you can get, you know, anything done over there. <laughs> I'm not getting anything done, brother. <laughs> That's my problem. <laughs> I believe it, man. I believe it. <laughs> not not the worst problem to have, though, definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just, I've, got a, I've got a publisher back in Australia that's, like, kind of busting my chops a bit. So when are we going to get the risk book? We need to put it out. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> That's classic. Uh, last question here, and this is only just because recently I've been interviewing a lot of fighters, you know, UFC and ex UFC fighters. Mm -hmm. And you know, you were in the you're in the music business. You were in the music business in the '90s with the grunge scene. A lot of that music is sort of you know angry music, or at least you know some of that is. And so I was wondering if you had to have a walkout song for like a fight, what would it be? Oh, jeez. <laughs> 
I mean, I've always found these questions tough because, um, uh, well, I was, I was going to say, touch me, I'm sick. Mm. <laughs> when my honey. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, a classic. They flipped the lyric there was to fuck me, I'm rich. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I, I find it very difficult. A lot of people ask, you know, if you can only do a few songs or what's your favorite song, or what's your deadline playlist? And I'm like, I love all kinds of music. I love so much different stuff at different times for different reasons, different moods. So it's really hard to ever, ever pick one thing out of it, out of it you know. And, and also being a little OCD, I change what I like a lot too, you know. So I might like something today and then the two weeks later, I'm like, I can never hear that song again. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. If I hear a song, if I listen to it too many times, it, it gets old and I got to find something new to, to listen yeah. to. Yeah. I'll think about it. My man, I'll flip you a couple of options of what we do like walkout songs. Yeah, yeah. Let me know in case uh, it ever comes that you you got to yeah. need a walkout song for some reason. That we I, have I gotta throw right. down with some. I gotta <laughs> yeah. throw down with some people. I've got a song ready. <laughs> They're trying to close the grill early or something on you. <laughs> Get the walkout song going. <laughs> yeah, I'll let everyone know if you hear this song. Be this travel coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Pav, it's been a pleasure, man, having you on the podcast. Really, really cool speaking with you and, and hearing about your right. career. And, you know, definitely looking forward to big things to come from you. Sweet, man. I appreciate you having me on.